This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Emerson, CPA with Parmelis and Associates. This is a bit of a landmark episode, last episode of the year. And as 2023 comes to an end, what better time to get a quick update on where some of the key programs stand, some tax updates, and what to expect as we start the next chapter for a new year. Before we get into that, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. For over 30 years, Napatrax has made selecting the right shop management system easy by offering the best, most comprehensive SMS in the industry. We'll prove to you that Trax is the single best shop management system in the business. Visit them online at napatrax.com. That's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. Promotive has over 40 years of recruiting and automotive experience. If you're in need of a qualified technician and service advisors and want to offload the heavy lifting, visit them online at gopromotive.com. I did a webinar, I guess by the time you guys listened to this, a couple of weeks ago for our clients where I dove into some of this stuff, uh, a little bit of different stuff, a little bit of the same, and also had a couple of things change since then. Really just wanted to say thank you, first and foremost, to everyone that has listened throughout this year. The feedback that I've got still blows me away that you guys want to hear me talk, and I truly do appreciate it. It is exactly why I do this. So just to say thank you to all of you guys that listen, all you guys that reached out and say, hey, thanks for doing these. Thanks for doing the episodes. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. This is one that did get updated since I did my webinar with clients. So if you're one of my clients and you're about to turn it off, hey, don't turn it off quite yet. It's not exactly the same content. Come on. I wasn't just going to regurgitate the same information, but we did have a big Federal Reserve meeting earlier in December. We've been there. I've talked about the Federal Reserve before. I haven't talked about them for a number of months because it hasn't really been much change. Up, down, left. Maybe we're going to do this. Maybe we're not going to. But the big thing that came out of the meeting was they were not changing the rates. That was not a surprise. No one really expect them to raise the rates on that one. Right now, we're in a bit of a waiting game period to see if some of the changes that they've had made are actually going to affect the market. If you remember back into the summertime, or maybe you're a new listener and you haven't heard me talk about the Federal Reserve before, the big thing that everyone's looking for is when are they going to stop raising rates and when are they going to start cutting rates? And again, like we've talked about before on this, there's really two big things that come out of these meetings. Obviously, the policy aspect of it, of what are we going to do? Are we going to change the rates? Are we not? And then also kind of the notes afterwards. And a lot of times these notes afterwards, they usually come about a week later after the actual rate announcement or where people really start to go wild on this. What they do is they look at specific lingo, leanings, trends, what they think. I mean, it's really kind of funny because uh, a lot of the people on the board actually came out afterwards and said, hey, Mark has got to be careful here. They're kind of reading into this stuff a little bit more than they need to, which is actually pretty surprising in that fact. A lot of times, people on the board, people are making these decisions, these heads that are coming to these meetings to change these rates or discuss these changing these rates, don't usually commentate on how people are interpreting. Like, hey, they think that they're taking a hawkish position. And if you were to go and ask them about that, be like, hey, you know what? The market's going to do what they want to do. So I thought that that was pretty interesting itself when the market is factoring in a rate decrease in March, end of the first quarter of 2024, 
the market is already pricing in essentially a 75% chance that they are going to start decreasing the rates. A couple different people came out and said, hey, you know what? We all just have to be cautious. We have to make sure that it's the right move, which I thought was kind of strange. Essentially trying to throw some water on that fire of, hey guys, don't get off and too excited here and be disappointed. Is that going to make a much difference on the market? I don't know. I mean, and this market for 2023 has really confused a lot of people. All signs look like that the market shouldn't have done as well as it did, and it had a banner year. Now, a lot of this is related to a handful of very large tech stocks, including the massive boom in AI. I was trying to find this article. It was actually pretty interesting. But if you took out some of these major gainers throughout the year, the market overall is down. But those people that were gaining and how much they were gaining and how big of a market cap they have was able to lift this to, when I'm recording this, record highs. Like I talked about before here, when this says the market is pricing in a 75% chance that they are going to start cutting rates. This is deja vu. In the summertime, they were factoring in that there was going to be a rate cut by the end of the year. And at some point, the percentage chance was even higher than that. Now, when the rates never got cut this year, the market never really had a major correction. Made a couple blips here and there, but overall, it just kept on trucking, which is really stumping a lot of people, including the Federal Reserve themselves. Now, why March, right? Why are people factoring in that March is going to be when they're cutting rates? We're going to talk more about this later. I don't want to spend a whole episode on this, but I wanted to kind of do a little bit of a precursor because I think it's important. Because if you're looking at financing, if you're looking at refinancing, obviously you're looking at the rates right now and it's like, man, these are pretty bad. When is this going to start to change? A lot of people, market included, are factoring in this to start decreasing in March. And just like we saw about a year and a half ago when they started increasing this stuff, it's not like that they're going to increase the rate one time and stop and never do it. Generally, they're going to go on a swing up and then when you see it, a plateau, and then they're going to start to downslide. Even though that they're factoring in a rate decrease in March, which is probably 0.25% or 25 basis points there, what they're expecting is that is when the decrease starts. So March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, they're expecting that stuff to start sliding back down, which if they are right, and depending on how fast they cut these rates, we should start seeing a more favorable interest rate market middle to late next year. That's assuming that we are going to pull off a soft landing like we talked about before. If we see massive rate cuts beginning of next year, middle of next year, 75 basis points, a whole percentage point or something like that, the rates are coming down fast. That is not a good thing. That means, oh my God, we are falling. Soft landing did not work. We're crashing a Ravari crash and we got to make sure that we don't completely kill this economy. Like I said, we're not going to get into this too much, but going back to why they're saying March is what they're looking for is they're looking for the trailing 12-month inflation numbers. So every single month, they track how much the prices have went up or down for the month. And the big number that they're looking for is the average for the last 12 months. I was kind of confused myself, and this might not even be the real thing on it, but I'm a numbers guy. So taking a look at the charts and stuff like that, I think I know why they are factoring in March. If you look for the monthly inflation rates or really the overall average for the last four months, it really hasn't changed that much. It was like 3.7, 3.7, 3.2, 3.1. And you might say, hey, hon, that's going down. But if I mentioned the two months before that, it was 3.0, 3.2. So 3.0, 3.2, 3.7, 3.2. I don't see any sort of trend there. 
anyone that tries to put any sort of correlation to that is probably just misguided. However, if you're looking at the trailing 12 months inflation, there's two big numbers in here that are going to come off once we hit March. And so if we're looking at March for the inflation numbers, then the previous January and February of 2023, those numbers will fall off. And we had some pretty high inflation numbers last January and February, half a percentage point almost in both of those months. If we can replace the half a percentage point in January and a half a percentage point in February with new updated numbers in 2024 that show softer monthly inflation, like what we had for November at like 0.1%, then the overall rates might actually come down very close to that 2% target that they are shooting for. However, there's a reason why this happens namely energy and a number of other things that start to get more expensive in the wintertime, that I'm not sure there's any sort of certainty to count on this. Because yeah, this month, November was only 0.1%. August was at 0.6%. September was at 0.4%. October was at 0.0%. Again, there's not a whole lot of correlation here. And these numbers have been seeming to confuse the Federal Reserve for a long time. Reason I mention this is because the rest of this episode as we talk about is stuff that we're going to be looking for as the start of the year. And this is going to be a big thing that's going to come back because while it's been no news lately, we haven't had any major increases here sometime in 2024. And as the market has told us, they're hoping sooner rather than later, we might see these rates fall. But that's all I got on that one for right now. Keep an eye out here in the next couple of weeks because might do one before, probably try and wait for the next Federal Reserve meeting. That would be, I believe, the last two days of January is when the Federal Reserve is going to meet next. Now, no one is expecting, again, any sort of increases or decreases there. The meeting after that is the March meeting that everyone's talking about. Again, they're not going to be looking for any sort of increase or decrease in January, but everyone is going to be watching those notes like a hawk to see if there's any sort of inclination of what they're planning to do next. And really, a lot of this probably comes down to those inflation numbers. Obviously, we're in December right now, so we don't have December numbers, but we'll have December numbers then. Being that that's at the end of January, the January figures will not be publicly posted. But hey, these guys are also ones that do these figures. I imagine they might have the early edition. So right now, we just have to sit tight and wait and see what happens. Let's face it. Your shop management system is the single most important tool in your shop, period. You need Napa Tracks because it integrates with all the major players, including Napa ProLink, PartsTech, OE RepairLink, Epicor, TireConnect, Mitchell One Pro Demand, and more. Napa Tracks has leading edge tools and technology that your shop needs right now. Unlike the other guys, we'll be there after your installation with the best training and support in the business. Your training includes a learning management system that is tailored to each role in your company. Simply put, Trax was designed and built for shop owners just like you. It all starts when a local representative meets with you to learn about your business to help optimize your shop's workflow, efficiency, and profitability. For over 30 years, Napa Trax has made selecting the right shop management system easy by offering the best, most comprehensive SMS in the industry. After all, it's your shop, so it's your choice. Visit us on the web at napatrax.com. That's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. Shop owners, are you struggling to find and retain top-tier talent for your automotive shop? Introducing Promotive on the web at gopromotive.com. With over 40 years of combined industry and recruiting experience, we're the ultimate staffing solution. We go beyond traditional agencies. 
Our team provides dedicated recruiters and account managers advising on processes, compensation, and benefits. We focus on placing technicians and service advisors with shop that offer the best culture, training, and long-term growth opportunities. Trust our experience to match the right talent to your shop. We carefully select shops that value employee excellence and provide an environment for success. Our dedicated team leads the entire process, leveraging our industry knowledge and expertise. Partner with Promotive and experience their advantage to help you build a high-performing team that drives your shop's growth. Visit gopromotive.com today and let us help find and keep the best talent in the industry. Let's get to some other things, some other updates for the end of the year. ERTC update. So employee retention tax credit. As we talked about a couple months ago, the employee retention tax credit closed mid-September. Not going to get into why they closed. Essentially, they thought that there was a lot of fraud, more or less from what everyone can understand. It's probably had nothing to do with an influx of fraud. People that were making this stuff up have been making it up since they opened this. But really, there is a massive, massive, massive backlog. When the time that they closed this in mid-September, they had almost 700,000 unprocessed applications that they had yet to get through. From what I've been hearing on people that know people, and that's not like I have some sort of inside source, talking to a couple people that used to work at the IRS that still have friends there, by the sounds of it, they haven't really made much headway on that backlog. Now, the reason that is important is because they are supposed to open this back up on January 1st to start accepting new applications. Are they going to do that? We'll see. I don't know if they have a choice here. And this is where it gets really tricky because it's kind of unprecedented that they stopped it like this. You generally can't stop processing these because you're not actually processing applications for ERTC. You're stopping the processing of amended payroll tax returns. And a couple of people have kind of questioned this of, hey, it's not like when you send this in, you put a rubber stamp on this saying this is ERTC. Now, there is places where you'd be able to tell what it is, but everything else, it just looks like a regular payroll tax return. Changing tax code or pausing programs like this on the fly is something we've never seen before. So don't really have any prior knowledge to go on and say, hey, what is this going to look like? We just don't know. Also, the government is absolutely broke already. Can't even agree on a budget, let alone start spending out more money here. We will have to see. The big thing, though, that we are keeping our eye on is the audits. As of right now, there really has not been any official audits of after the tax that anyone has really seen. Like I was talking, one of the people that I was referencing before talking about that the IRS has not got through the backlog was a tax attorney that works for a firm that one of the biggest ones that does this ERTC stuff. And he, they have not had a single person get audited after they received the funds. But they said in the last couple of months, they had had a couple that had the IRS had reached out and wanted some more information before they sent the money. What we are keeping an eye out for is really a couple things here. The first of which is the statute of limitations of the IRS being able to audit um, 2020 employee retention tax credits actually lapses here in the earlier second quarter of 2024. Unless they can change the tax law on this or unless they can have like a special exemption, as it stands right now, I think come May of 2024, they actually can't even audit you for 2020. This is the government. They set the rules on it and they could always come back and and do really whatever they want. There's rules, there's guidelines on what they can do and they can't. They're also the ones that create it. I'm not going to be ignorant here and be like, oh, look, we got you guys because they could also go and just erase this 
write in something new and say, well, here's the new law, guys. We're going to come look at this. But it's really tricky. And really, a lot of people are looking to see what the IRS is going to plan to do on this. The IRS wrote the tax law in a way that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. They have not taken a single one of these to tax court. Like I said, they haven't really been pushing at this this hard. There's a lot of kind of back and forth chatter here about what the IRS plans to do with this. There's been talk about increasing their funding. Most of those have been squashed down. The IRS is so backlogged on a regular job that a lot of people are saying, how could they ever go and try and audit this ERTC program for two reasons. One of which, like I said, it is very, very convoluted. It is very complicated. Maybe they'll be able to get their agents trained up enough to look into this stuff. And number two is just technical manpower of this. All right. If we do train these agents up and we do have them going after and chasing down ERTC claims, what are we going to have to have revenue agents on income tax audits and stuff like that? Personally, what I think is I think we will start seeing some audits on ERTC. I don't think it's going to be like boots on the ground, knocking on the door type stuff. Generally, when these start, they start as informational requests. Hey, can we see the back, the backup documentation on how you calculate this credit? Honestly, for most of those informational requests, if you hired a firm, as most everyone here has, I don't think I've ever heard of someone self-preparing this stuff, that firm provided you with this backup documentation. There is, I'm sure, a number of just straight up fraud here where it's like you didn't even have the payroll, let alone a decrease or anything like that, that if you send them back and you have backup documentation, it seems to look reasonably correct on this. I think they'll probably let those people slide and they'll go and follow up on the ones that chose to ignore those requests and say, hey, you didn't respond back to us. We're going to look a little bit more into this. And also from a revenue generation side of point, I mean, this is basic return on investment. If you get $300,000 in ERTC, if they disallow that in audit, they just created $300,000 of revenue. Now, how are they going to collect it if you've already spent it? Hey, that's another question. Compare that to generating $300,000 from an income tax audit. They would have to find that you underreported sales by over a million dollars or made up expenses by over a million dollars. And that's just massive. It's just really never going to happen especially given the size business that got 300,000 in the ERTC, that would be probably almost all of their sales that they were emitting from their tax return. It just doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem reasonable. You try to make too much sense in this, especially when you talk about the government, you're always going to get into trouble. Again, we just have to wait and see. For those of you, if you've already got your ERTC money, I wouldn't lose any sleep. I wouldn't do anything differently. You got your money. Go back to doing your business. If you currently have your ERTC in process on it, don't hold your breath. It's going to take a while. Before we were saying three to six months. From what I've seen and what I've heard, that's probably closer to nine to 12 months at this point. If you have not submitted your ERTC claim and you're waiting for that January 1st deadline, just keep an eye out. Like I said, we should know here in a couple of days if they're going to open it back up or if they do, if they change it and what it looks like. Now, 2024 tax law changes. There really is nothing major that has come out that we need to be aware of as of right now. Like I joked about when I did my webinar with my clients, you would think that these law changes would be set in stone and given out to people before the year starts. That's almost never how tax law changes work. Most of these tax law changes, and I expect that we will have a couple this year, later this year, especially being an election year, But a lot of times those come mid-year and probably more times than not, a lot of these stuff actually come after the year has closed. 
Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. doesn't make my job any easier, but hey, they make the rules. We just have to go along with it. It is what it is. The one big thing that did come out, and this is not really related to taxes, but it is the new FinCEN requirements. You might have got emails, you might have got solicitations about this, but it's called the FinCEN Beneficial Ownership Information Requirements, or BOIR. You might not have ever heard of FinCEN before. Generally, FinCEN's job is anti-money laundering and financial crimes and stuff like that. The only recent updates from the FinCEN is a couple of years ago, they changed the rules where you have to disclose any sort of foreign bank accounts. You've always had to disclose if you've had foreign income to stop money laundering, stashing money in tax havens. What they did is they actually said, hey, I don't care if all of that money is there legitimately. If you have an account overseas, you know, not even necessarily in the Cayman Islands or Switzerland or somewhere like that, if you have any sort of assets or money overseas, you need to tell it to us. If you don't tell us that you have this money overseas or these foreign investments, the fines for this are massive, massive, massive. The reason why they changed that is money laundering is very hard to catch by design. But they know, hey, it's hard to catch someone if they were money laundering. But if we make these requirements, we don't need to catch that money laundering. We could just catch them having a bank account somewhere that they didn't tell us about. And the penalties and the sometimes jail time is equal, if not even more. And this FinCEN beneficial ownership report is very similar. I really do not know why they are doing this. And some of this information they already have. And as we'll talk about here in a little bit, it's not like they're going after these massive conglomerates of the ones where you look at it and it's like, yeah, we probably do want to know who owns these things. No, really, most of this stuff is directed at small businesses, which again, shocking, not really. You know, just like when recently they came out and said, oh, we're just going after the upper income, the tax dodgers, but then they make 1099 requirements for Zelle and PayPal, anything over $600. Their words and their actions are generally two different things. But what this is, and we don't have to worry about any of this yet, it starts in 2024 that you need to file this information report. You can't even do it right now. It doesn't open until January 1st anyways. But essentially what it's going to be is, hey, my name is Hunts Auto Repair LLC. I'm the owner of it. Here's my name, address, and social security number. And then I list anyone else that has a percentage ownership in it. It should be pretty quick and easy to do. And when we do actually get the official portal up and live on this, I'll do a webinar and I'll share it. I may be talking about an episode. If not, check us out on YouTube, our Facebook page. I'll do a webinar that kind of walks through it. If it's simple enough, I might just even send something out of a little screenshot of, hey, just go in here, put your name, address, and social security. You can't really mess this up. Does everyone have to do this? No. And you could even have some businesses that are exempt from doing this. Subsidiaries, holding companies that don't have any activities. All of those people are exempt. But most all of your operating entities, rental, loaner car businesses, you name it, you're going to have to do this. Again, it's not massive. They already know this stuff. They see our K-1s, which have all this information on it. Why we have to do it again, I don't know. Now, like I mentioned before, it kind of makes sense. Like, hey, what are some of these advanced tax sheltered nonprofit charities, foundations? What are these guys doing? Who actually owns this stuff? And I was like, you know what? That's probably not a bad thing. Until I started reading down through the rules and I saw who was exempt from this. So there's actually 21 different classes of business that are exempt, starting with obviously government municipalities are exempt. Not a shocker there. 
But then you get into nonprofits, any type of nonprofits, any type of foundation. Nope, don't need to know who owns that, who has a vested interest in it. Money services business, not even sure what that is, but essentially that's going to be banks, anything related to money, different brokerage houses and stuff like that. Venture capital funds, right? I'm sure there's nothing going on there. Why do we want to know who owns those? Pooled investment vehicles. Again, it's not vehicles like we drive. It is a vehicle as in the term. But again, it sounds kind of shady. Probably want to know who owns it. But nope, you're exempt. We don't need to know. Now, the only um, good one on here was accounting firms. I guess we've been proven too trustworthy. You're never going to know who owns Parmelis, except for I do a podcast, so you probably do know it. But the last one on here was really funny. The last one, and some of you guys might actually be in this category, is large companies. And what do you and I think about large companies? And the IRS actually has a designation for large companies. Generally, large company means over 50 employees or over $8 million in sales. But just like always, they decide to rewrite the rules of what the definition of large companies are. If you have over 20 employees and over $5 million in sales, you don't need to tell them who owns that stuff. I know a ton of people are going to pass the threshold for 20 employees. The $5 million in sales is probably going to be trickier, but I have a number of clients that would already pass that. Essentially, what they're saying is, hey, all of these ones where we said, you know what, probably not a bad idea to know who owns that stuff. They don't need to file anything. And then any large company, quote unquote, over $5 million in sales, we don't need to know about that either. So who do they want to know who owns this? It's all small businesses, which again, super strange, but they didn't ask me. We got to do it. And when I figure out more, I will let you guys know. Nothing to worry about unless you have some foreign terrorist or some wanted criminal or something that owns your business, but it's pretty straightforward stuff here. And again, like I said, they already know this, right? If you're one of my clients, they already see this stuff on your K-1s. I don't know. It is what it is. We got to do what they tell us. Last thing I wanted to say on here, and I mentioned this on my client webinar, and this one, surprisingly, a lot of people hadn't heard about this. Actually, several of my clients said like, ooh, wait, I heard about this, or I got an email, and I didn't know if it was real or not. But there is a massive class action lawsuit, $5.7 billion settlement that just recently closed. And who lost was credit card processors and credit card companies themselves, where they were caught illegally charging or overcharging for fees and some mixture of price fixing in there. Who is eligible for this class action suit? Anyone that accepted credit cards over the period of 2004 to 2019. If you started your business before 2019, you are eligible to be part of this settlement. I'll put the link in there for the FinCEN requirements as well, but I'm also going to put the website on here for this class action lawsuit. Some of you might have got an email about of it. Some of you might even have got the little postcard from your credit card processor. You probably threw it away if you weren't looking at it quick because it really does look like trash. I don't know how much you're going to get. Probably not a whole lot. I'm guessing the lawyers are going to eat up all of this and imagine how many people are eligible because it's pretty much anyone and everyone that ever accepted a credit card over this 15-year period. But what you have to do is your credit card processor will send you this little postcard that will give you a code. You need to enter that code in on the website. On the website, it says that they are mailing all of these codes out or processors are supposed to be mailing these codes out middle of December to the end of December. Maybe you've got it. Maybe you have not. Again, I haven't actually gone down through and done this process. When I do, I'll give you guys an update if we need to. Generally for these class action suits though, there's not a whole lot you really got to put in there. Hey, I'm opting in. 
I don't even know if they're going to ask you how much your sales are or if all that stuff is already reported by the credit card processor. But go ahead and do it. There's no downside. I remember one time Red Bull got sued and they lost a huge class action lawsuit. Hilariously enough, because their slogan, Red Bull gives you wings, and some knucklehead sued them and said, hey, that's false advertising and won. Like, I don't know. Sometimes the American legal system can just make you scratch your head. Anyways, I got an email one time. Hey, you're in a class action lawsuit. If you bought a Red Bull, you're eligible. I said, all right, what's going to happen? I think they sent me two cases of Red Bull for my troubles, which, hey, I'm not going to argue with that. Hey, even if we get 50 bucks, even when we get $100, it's coming from a credit card processor, at least some money coming back. This is on the heels of multiple bills that have been running through Congress. And we did talk about this earlier this year. Remember we talked about that they were trying to get rid of credit card fees? This is all kind of having to do with this. They're yelling at the credit card companies. They're yelling at the processes for fees, all kinds of stuff like that. And in turn, the credit card processes are yelling back, all right, we'll get rid of the fees, but that means we're getting rid of the rewards. And honestly, with this suit finally coming down and getting settled, we could be closer and closer to that. And 2024 might be the year that we start to see credit card processing fees go down, maybe at some point ultimately going away, which I think is really, really important. Especially as we see an influx and changing away from old school cash currency to digital currencies, not just Bitcoin, but hey, credit card is more or less a digital currency. You're not touching it. Hey, you're like, oh, I would never trust Bitcoin. You don't really have all your money in gold bars at Wells Fargo either. We're not that far away, which personally is very unsettling, but hey, that's for another time. But really the biggest thing is trying to get away from these fees because of the dilution. If you follow the bouncing ball here, if people transfer enough money around, at some point, no one's going to be left with any money except for the credit card processors because they're taking 2% of every single transaction. And to put that into perspective, let's say that you have $100, $100 bill. You want to pay 10 different people or 10 different people go in the domino effect. I give someone 100, they give someone else 100. And to do that 10 times, that 10th person has a $100 bill in their hands. If you were to do this 10 times with a credit card, what's that end person going to end up with? $70, $65. Of that $100, every single time we're transferring that, Chase, Wells Fargo, whoever's the back-end brokerage house on this stuff is getting a small cut of this. It's like Vegas. They're taking a rake out of every single pot. The more and more we transfer money, the more and more money they make. I get it. When there is alternatives, hey, if you want to avoid these fees, pay in cash. Try to go to a sporting event. No one takes cash anymore. Try and go to Disney World or any amusement park. None of them take cash anymore. If you're not giving anyone alternatives to what they can use, then the fee is a little bit predatory because there's no way around it. Will they do that? Is it the right thing? Two different answers, but we'll just have to wait and see. And maybe that's the overall conclusion of this episode is I didn't give you much finality on any of this stuff. This is the big things that I'm looking for coming into the year. None of this stuff is majorly concerning. None of this stuff is anything I'm losing any sleep over. But obviously, wanted to kind of keep this stuff on my radar because it's really going to shape what the rest of 2024 looks like. Well, that brings us to the end of this one. Take some time, reflect on the year, set some goals financially, personally, or whatever else you want. It's another year in the books. Please share with friends if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. Please shoot me an email at podcast at Thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on the aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listening apps. Thanks again for joining me. 
all this year on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there, and I will talk to you in 2024. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.